We're looking at St. Paul's letter to the Philippians today. St. Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer, uh, about one quarter of the entire New Testament. If we're going to understand his letters, including this one, it's important to realize that he wrote them with some basic assumptions in place. He doesn't argue for these things, so he doesn't come out and say them. He takes them for granted, and here's the thing. He assumes that his readers are taking them for granted, too, which is not always the case. I'll give you an example. Paul assumes that the creator of heaven and earth is actively involved in what's happening in our world. So, for example, in Washington, D.C., in Beijing, in in, uh, uh, London, God's involved. He's not on vacation. He's paying attention. Uh, Paul assumes that the creator, who is the God and father of Jesus Messiah, is currently at work in our day-to-day world. All people on earth and every institution of which they're a part is known by God, is accessible to God, and is responsible before God. Uh, That includes you and me and Lockwood Church. This is something that Paul doesn't argue. He takes it for granted. He further assumes that God is pursuing a specific goal and is employing individuals and institutions to achieve it, whether they realize it or not, whether they cooperate or not. That goal is stated in his letter to the Ephesians, one of the great important passages in the New Testament. That goal is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. We read over that and miss how revolutionary, in the fullest sense of the word, It is. The goal is to bring all things, for example, nations and their governments, under the headship of one leader, Jesus. So the U.S., Russia, China, England, France, and the other 191 so-called sovereign states will be governed by one head, Jesus Messiah. That's the plan. Talk about a one-world government. This is it. And it's God's intention to make it happen. But it's not just nations. It's people, animals, weather systems, physical processes, spiritual forces, authorities, powers, dominions, everything. Paul sees God making all things work together toward this goal. And Paul has committed himself, even to the point of sacrificing his life, to the cause. He further assumes that the church to which he's writing has the same purpose, the realization of the universal lordship of Jesus. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a church. If we read Paul without realizing this, we will unwittingly substitute some other goal in place of this one. For example, we'll assume, like most of the people we know, that the goal of life is happiness. And we'll read a passage about prayer, for example, against that background, and it'll look quite different to us than it did to Paul. We can carefully exegete that passage. We can do word studies and have really good insights. We can use all the right theological terms to describe it, but we'll miss the point. Take, for example, the request we looked at last week that church people be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That will look very different to us than it did to Paul if we assume the reason for knowing God's will is so we can help our children succeed in life. 
or so that we can establish a financial security for ourselves in retirement. Paul assumed the reason for knowing God's will is to establish the headship of Jesus over all the earth. That explains why some people try the Christian life for a while and give it up. They thought it was about one thing when it was really about something else. Some years ago, when we lived in the, the old house, we had a remote control for the TV, another for the VCR, and a third one for the DVD player, and we kept them all in the same drawer. And sometimes I'd be sitting on the sofa, I'd reach into that drawer, pull one of them out, push the button, and nothing would happen. And I'd push it harder, and nothing happened. And I'd think, this thing isn't working. But of course it was. I was just trying to make it do something it wasn't designed to do. If we think the purpose of knowing God's will is so that we can escape every difficulty and live a comfortable, prosperous life, we're bound to come to the conclusion that prayer doesn't work. For a while, we'll try harder and harder, and then we'll give up. However, if, like Paul, we're committed to and engaged in preparing for Jesus to take sovereign rule of all the world, we'll see that prayer works exactly as intended. With all that in mind, and that's a bunch, let's look at the next prayer in our powerful prayer series, Paul's prayer for his friends that live in the city of Philippi. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 of the first chapter. Verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now back to what I was just saying. When Paul writes about what is best in verse 10, so that you may discern what's best, and we'll go into that shortly. It's with the goal, the, the universal headship of Jesus in mind. What's best isn't determined by our ease, our comfort, or prestige, but by the establishment of the sovereign rule of Jesus Messiah over all the earth. If you haven't realized it before, the people of Jesus are insurgents. They are revolutionaries preparing for the overthrow of the status quo and the return to power of earth's rightful ruler. So it might surprise us that Paul, the committed revolutionary, who for the sake of the cause has spent years in jails and in prisons all around the Mediterranean, it might surprise us that he would pray for the Philippians revolutionaries, love life. He'd already written in verse 4 of all his prayers for the Philippians, and he mentioned that he was always praying for them with joy. In verse 9 11, he tells them what he's been praying for them, and it's all about their love. Now, what has love got to do with the subjection of every nation, people, and power on earth under one head, even Christ? What's love got to do with it? Everything. Everything. The revolution to which Paul was committed is a revolution of love. The Lord to which Paul submitted is the Lord of love. His rule is the rule of love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself is the law of his kingdom. Life as Jesus' person begins with 
and continues with and ends in love. If your faith does not equip you to love God and people, something's not right. Jesus called love the greatest command. He told his followers that they must be like their Father in heaven, even loving their enemies. What kind of revolution is that? Paul told the Roman Christians to let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. He wrote, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians, he says, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, St. James, the, the first leader of the church at Jerusalem, wrote, if you keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. Jesus told his disciples that love was their ID card. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. The reign of Jesus will not be one of severity and dominance, but of love. The revolution is powered by love. Every time the church makes a great leap forward, it's because they love Love is the church's secret weapon. No wonder Paul prayed for the Philippians' love. We can't do right when love is absent. We can't be right when love is wrong. Paul's prayer for his friends is that their love will abound. That word is frequently in the New Testament translated overflow like a river that overflows its banks. That's the idea. Kenneth, we suggest the word uh, speaks of something that is conspicuous. So when the river that flows through downtown overflows its banks, it's conspicuous. Everyone sees it. Paul is praying that the thing about these Christians, he's praying that their love will overflow, that that's the thing that will be conspicuous about them. Let me pause there for a second is the most conspicuous thing about Lockwood people, their love. Is love the first thing that people notice about us? God gave the church no substitute for their love. Organizational efficiency can't replace it. Good preaching won't compensate for its absence. Superb music is no alternative. Love is what makes a church great. Lack of love is what spoils it. There are two specific qualities in love with which Paul is especially concerned in this prayer. He wants their love to abound more and more, to start overflowing and never stop in knowledge and depth of insight. Both those qualities merit close attention. Knowledge is the same word that we saw for the last couple weeks in the Colossians prayer and carries the idea of recognition. So in Colossians, that knowledge had to do with recognizing God's will. You're going through life, say, oh, this is God's will. I recognize it. For people like us, people in the West, correlating love and knowledge seems odd. Because influenced by Chaucer and Shakespeare, we think love is blind. Paul thinks that love alone truly sees. Now that has consequences. If he's right, we'll never really understand someone we don't love. 
Husbands won't understand their wives if they don't love them. Wives won't understand their husbands, parents their children, children their parents without love. The Senegalese poet Baba Diom had it backwards when he said, we love only what we understand. We only understand, really understand, what we truly love. That means if you're having trouble understanding someone, why is he doing this? I don't understand him at all. Your first step should be to ask God to love him through you and then act in love. Pray for him. Speak well of him. Do good to him. That's the path to understanding. Paul prays that the, the depth of insight will also abound in their love. Depth of insight. That translates a single Greek word, which was originally used to refer to um, sense perception. So Paul is praying that the Philippians' love will be perceptive. Love can actually heighten a person's perception. Think about, so, you know, that almost demands an illustration of two people in love with each other, but that's not the illustration I'm going to give since it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm going to give you an illustration about football. Think about a quarterback who is totally in the zone. I mean, he's just hitting everything. He sees things he wouldn't otherwise see. And nobody displayed this ability more often than Peyton Manning. When he was on his game, he could see without realizing he was seeing that the middle linebacker is picking up the slant. The corner is blitzing from the right side. The safety is helping out with the wide receiver. And the tight end just released and has about a five-yard opening. He could see all that. He could perceive it because he could. He could choose the best option, hit the tight end, make the first down. For us, the way to get in the zone is to love. When we love, we perceive things we would otherwise miss. That that slight delay in that person answering, the tense facial muscles, the hesitation, we'll sense things we wouldn't normally notice. That's how love works. When does this depth of insight come into play? It comes into play all the time. When we're raising children, when we're doing our jobs, when we're spending our money, relating to our parents, teaching a class, helping our friends, even playing the piano or building a house. Paul knows that knowledge and depth of insight are available through love and they help us discern what's best, what's the best path to take. Now, the word translated discern is an important one in Paul's vocabulary. 86% of the time it's used in the New Testament, Paul's the one using it. It's a quality control word. It has the idea of testing something for approval and use. So when Paul writes to the Romans, he uses this word when he tells the, the Christians there that they will be able to test and approve what God's will is. How often we need to do that. Is this opportunity from God? Should I forge ahead? Should I hold back? Should I take this job? Should I volunteer for this ministry? We weigh the pros and cons, which is the right thing to do, but in the absence of discerning love, we're bound to misjudge their weight. We'll think the financial component weighs more than it does. The relationship component weighs less will approve or reject an opportunity and think we've done a good job, but we've set it on an inaccurate scale. 
Only love can balance the scale. If, this is verse 10 now, if we are able to discern what's best, we, and best there is is an interesting word. It means what differs. And the idea with, you'll see the difference between things and be able to judge which one of them is best. We'll be able, if we can do that, to remain, this verse 10, pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, the word we have here is not the one usually translated pure. It's a compound word with two roots. Interesting word. The first means sunlight, and the second is from the verb to judge. So it's something evaluated in the light. Paul wants his friends to lead the kind of life in which they can see clearly and can be clearly seen without deceiving, without being deceived. That is as important now as it has ever been. The word translated blameless is also not the usual word. These are words pure and blameless that show up a lot, but neither one of these is the one that Paul usually uses. The idea here has to do with avoiding stumbling. So the root has to do with that that idea of striking something and stumbling. Paul's praying that his friends love now will enable them to make choices that they and others will not stumble over later. I've seen people make choices that eventually cause them or their families to stumble, to fall out of relationship with God, out of relationship with each other. Paul doesn't want that for his friends. But the only way to avoid that is with this love that discerns what's best. I read an article recently by a therapist who specializes in working with millennials. And she says that there's a theme that runs through all of her encounters with her clients. Whether they come to her because they're struggling with anxiety or they just feel like failures or they don't know if they're going to have enough money to retire, the theme that resurfaces again and again is, I can't decide what to do. What if I make the wrong choice? What these millennials need is exactly what Paul is talking about. Love that overflows with knowledge and insight. It's what we all need. The result of this perceptive, discerning love is, verse 11, a life that brings glory and praise to God. You know, Sir Christopher Wren built St. Paul's Cathedral in London to the glory of God, famously. J.S. Bach composed all his music to the glory of God. He wrote that on his manuscripts. Um, Handel dedicated his Te Deum to God. Countless church and school buildings have to the glory of God etched on their cornerstones. But nothing brings more glory to God than a person who loves. Except a church full of people who love. When one person lives a life of love, we say, what a great guy he is. When a church full of people live a life of love, we say, God is great. 
We can only live this kind of life if we're connected to the source of this kind of love. You can't manufacture this. This love, St. John says, comes from God. St. Paul says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's possible to connect to this source of love through confidence in his son, Jesus. If you haven't done that, I invite you to do so today. If you don't know how to do that, please talk with me after the service or get together with a Christian friend whose life you respect and ask them how they got connected to God. It's a little like connecting a hose to a spigot. You know, the hose doesn't make the water. It just conveys it. No water's coming out unless water's getting in. It has to be connected, right? But that's not all. Once connected, the valve needs to be opened. The way you do that when you're loving is by choosing to love. You actually choose to do it. That choice is ours. A wise man once said, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you'll presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, for example, if you gossip about a person you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, for example, speaking well of him, you'll find yourself disliking him less. Choose to love. See? And you have to choose it again and again and again. It's not enough to say you love your spouse. You must choose to love your spouse. Choose to love your friend, your enemy, your teacher, the stranger in the store. The choice is what opens the valve. Love, not, not only a feeling, but an attitude. And not only an attitude, but a commitment. And not only a commitment, but a power. Love is eagle-eyed. Love discerns what's best. Love keeps us from making decisions that will trip over and hurt the people around us. Love is what brings glory and praise to God. So dare to love. And it will be something you have to dare to do many times. Choose to love. Live a life of love. All right, let's pray. Lord, we don't see it very often, but you see it. Most of our problems are because we don't love. So you who are the source of love and the fountain of life, Will you not shed abroad your love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit? Lord, there are many great things we could be known for. Our church could be called a church of prayer, a church with good Bible teaching. 
or a generous church. Lord, make us a church that is known because we love. Help us to see how to apply this in our own lives. Bring it back to mind this week and transform us by your love. In the name of the Lord of love, Jesus. Amen.